Harvard Divinity School. Peripheries Launch Event 2023, November 30th, 2023. Welcome to the launch of Peripheries um, sixth edition. And we're going to start with um, some music. Sam Weinberg is a saxophonist, um, improviser, and visual artist from New York. And he's just going to kick off the evening for us before our poetry events. Thank 
Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm honored to welcome you to this very special event, a celebration of the launch of the sixth and latest edition issue of Peripheries. Before I go any further, however, first of all, I want to thank Sam so much once again. And I want to invite those of you who are lurking in the back to please come forward and sit in the front. This is really 
somewhere between an invitation and a directive. Um, and if there's any, and do so now while I'm talking, because if there's anyone's words that you can kind of half pay attention to, they're mine. Thank you. So my name's Charles Stang. I am the uh, director at the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School, which serves as the publisher of this amazing journal. More than five years ago, Shara Bloor and I first conceived of peripheries, and I don't think either of us knew then what a success it would be. As I look back on my five years in this role, the launch and the trajectory of peripheries is among those accomplishments the center is proudest of, or especially proud of Shara, and the other student editors she has enlisted to help build up and to build out peripheries. And finally, of course, we're so pleased to welcome those poets and artists who have given so generously of their time and talent to fill peripheries pages. I'm going to keep my remarks brief, knowing all too well that you are not here to hear from me, but to enjoy music and art, and especially the words of our honored guests, the poets Victoria Chang, Jory Graham, and Alice Oswald, whom Shara will soon introduce. Allow me, though, to say a few words about Peripheries and its special place in the center. As you all know, Peripheries publishes poetry, prose, visual art, and music that is broadly understood peripheral, work that explores the interstices between discourses, traditions, language, art forms, and genres. Its name was originally in the singular, periphery, and was meant to play off the name of our center, center and periphery. Shara suggested that we shift to the plural, peripheries, not least because it signaled that the journal was interested not in, excuse me, not in one, but in many peripheral points of view, a kaleidoscope of the marginal, the incidental, and even the accidental. E.M. Forster, once described the poet Constantine Cavafy as, quote, standing at a slight angle to the universe. Here at the center, we're keenly interested in those who occupy the margins of the so-called world religions and those who stand at a slight angle to the traditions from whence they come. So too, in the pages of peripheries, you will find those who, like Cavafy, stand at a slight angle to the universe, indeed at a slight angle to this university. And thank God for that. In order to survive <laughs> and to thrive in this university, I think we need more spaces for odd angles and peripheral points of view. And I'd like to think that the Divinity School, and especially our center just across the street, which are at the geographical and in many ways the existential periphery of this institution can help create and cultivate those spaces, physical and philological, political and poetic. Many of those of you who have answered the call of the peripheral are students here at HDS, but many of you come from across the university for the past five years, talented students have contributed handsomely to this journal, both as writers 
and editors. Some have moved on to careers in writing. They're busy teaching and publishing. One of our very own, Danny Kraft, is coming back in the spring to share his own poetry and to lead a translation workshop on Yiddish poetry. Peripheries and its workshop community of poets are part of the center's longstanding interest and investment in spirituality and the arts. Based on the conviction that there is an important relationship between spirituality and creativity that remains always to be explored and expressed. My hope is that this evening is such an opportunity for exploration and expression. I cannot praise peripheries without once again acknowledging Shara Blore, the driving force behind the journal and its workshop community. Shara is a brilliant poet, philosopher, scholar of religion, and editor-in-chief. She leads a very talented team of editors who are behind the current, truly mesmerizing and engrossing issue of Peripheries. I want to thank Shara. I want to thank the members of the editorial board for their vision, their commitment, their professionalism, and their creativity. Without them, of course, Peripheries would simply not be possible. Sam Bailey. Where is Sam? Okay, Sam's hiding. There he is. Sam Bailey. Emma Delisle, there's Emma, and Gabby Wu, there's Gabby. Thank you, three. And although she is joining us on the screen uh, rather than in person, I would like to welcome Jory Graham back to the Divinity School and back to this room where just two years ago she read her poem, I Say to the Double Doors, as a dedication to the opening of the newly renovated Schwartz Hall. So welcome back, Jory. Thank you for your invaluable mentorship of Shira and so many others in this community, and thank you for your support of Peripheries. Finally, we all owe an enormous thanks to Lori Sedgwick. Where is she? There's Lori in the back. Lori, Lori is the center's events coordinator. Uh, I'd also like to thank Rob and Bobby from the HDS media team. Thank you so much. And to the center's two student research uh, assistants, LJ and Tristan. Thank you. Thank you both. So, I hope you all enjoy the poetry, the music, and the art this evening. And with that, Shira, the floor is yours. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you, Sam Weinberg, can't see you, um, for welcoming, welcoming us with saxophone and the collages behind him, both of which appear in the journal, this journal our 2024 edition, the sixth installment of Peripheries. Welcome to the launch. There are still seats in the front. <laughs> People, come. There are lots of seats. Okay, you may enter while I speak. <laughs> okay, the journal is, as usual, quite capacious, but I will not be so voluminous here. I know you want to hear poetry, 
but first some gratitude or some more gratitude to those whose work sustains it. To Gabby Wu, our designer, for the exquisite um, aesthetic, sensitivity and patience with which she materializes our vision. Um, this really is a collective vision. So I want to thank all our editors, especially our managing editor, Sam Bailey, um, for his tireless administrative labor, as well as his invaluable editorial work. What is best in the journal um, <laughs> uh, is thanks to him and to the craft and careful curation of our associate editor, editor Emma Delisle. And my gratitude to the entire editorial team, the senior poetry, prose, sound, and visual art editors, um, some of whom, many of whom are here um, or online. Um, the Harvard Divinity School's student body and faculty also make this whole enterprise possible, as does the generous support of the Center for the Study of World Religions, um, so beautifully helmed by Charles Stang and Gosha Skwodowska. Thank you. I also want to thank Heather Hughes <laughs> um, from Harvard University Press, our new distributor, very excitingly, and to celebrate our ongoing relationship with our good friends at Grolier Poetry Bookshop, who deserve our support, James Fraser um, from Grolier's in the foyer with books to be purchased. <laughs> After the readings, you're welcome to join us for the reception. And I want to say that this beautiful event, again, was organized by Laurie Sedgwick. Thank you to her for her dedication and hard work and all of her support. And thank you to Robert DeVoe and Robbie Rhodes for crucial tech support. This was all very complicated. Um, Post-reading. We will be convening in the next door room, um, which has been tr transformed into a gallery space, exhibiting a selection of pieces from the journal. There'll be refreshments and more live music by guitarist Jamie Farmer. Thank you, Jamie. And you can peruse the journal. In the journal, you'll find long sequences from Jeffrey Nutter and Joanna Klink, pieces from Cody Rose Cleverdance, Angie Estes, Sharon Olds, Aracelis Gamay, um, Rowan Ricardo Phillips, Bin Ramke, Tracy K. Smith, and Jackie Wang. Multi-sensorial as ever, paintings and photographs join music, scores, animation, algorithms, and even this year, dance. And there is a book within a book. This year's folio was edited by Emma and Sam. Thank you, a lot of hard work. The Anti-Letters collects occasional writings transformed into craft exercises and was originally inspired by the master letters of Emily Dickinson. So what is on the cover is not some extravagant salt shaker, but rather Emily Dickinson's letter seal, generously made avail available to us by Houghton Library. Finally, and most urgently now, I want to thank our three readers, Alice Oswald, Victoria Chang, and Jory Graham. We are proud to, so proud to include one of Alice's poems in Peripheries, issue six, and we're honored that she will be able to read for us tonight. 
Though we wish that we could give her a warm welcome in person, we are very grateful to have her with us virtually, especially since it is around midnight right now in the UK. So we'll start with Alice. Alice Oswald's poetry collections include The Thing in the Gapstone Tile, Dart, Memorial, Falling Awake, Nobody, and A Short Story of Falling. Her many honors and awards include the Eric Gregory Award, the Arts Foundation Award for Poetry, the Forward Prize, the Ted Hughes Award, the T.S. Eliot Prize, the Griffin Poetry Prize, and the London Hellenic Prize. For Memorial, a reworking that isolates, repeats, and writes from the many deaths in Homer's Iliad, Alice won the Warwick Prize for Writing, the first poet to be awarded this prize. Um, Alice Oswald is a poet known for her expertise in classical literature and often works in book-length poems or sequences that take influence from the oral tradition. Her poems are acutely attuned to the natural world and her words are meant to be spoken physically and organically into that world. The voice of plants, she says to McSweeney's Jesse Nathan, a patterned. That is what's remarkable about a good garden. It speaks to you all at once in interlocking patterns, and you realize immediately that prose is a second language, whereas poetry, insofar as it is patterned, is primary. Please join me now in welcoming the gardener and poet, Alice Oswald. Thank you so much. Uh, am I audible? Yeah. I hope someone yeah. will tell me if I'm not audible. Um, it's very nice to be sort of here. I'm not quite sure where I am when I'm online, uh, but I'm delighted to be reading for this launch and your publication sounds amazing. I'm going to start and end with a sonnet, which I think is the perfect form for calling out and hearing back. And I'm going to do a rather strange thing. Uh, I'm going to speak each poem twice as a gesture towards those patterns which can so easily be lost online. It's a very odd thing giving an online reading, especially if like me, you're very interested in live performance. But having now done it a few times, I have decided that if I repeat poems, then I am in some way making an allusion to time. And I think that unrecorded time, the kind of time that is absolutely unretrievable, is really the true medium of poetry. And it is the place where human repetition happens. So whenever I repeat a poem, uh, you may feel bored, but please also notice that I am alive and I'm operating in time that is unrepeatable and I'm kind of trying to outflank it. So I'll start uh, with the poem, which I sent to Peripheries magazine, and it's called Spider. And this poem actually was written after a dream in which this happened. I found this copper spider in my shoe. And when I praised her gracefulness, she grew more graceful. She began to lift as if inflated 
by my gracious adjective. O spider, full of order, made of air and horsehair, like an inside-out guitar. I want to praise your instrument of praise and so increase its tentative and sideways workings that when you fasten to my door four pairs of compasses whose pencils draw the surface area of time in eight successive circles, like a sketch of fate with one line lengthening to the sun. I know if I keep still, the whole design will grow. I found this copper spider in my shoe. And when I praised her gracefulness, she grew more graceful. She began to lift as if inflated by my gracious adjective. O oh, spider full of order, made of air and horsehair, like an inside out guitar. I want to praise your instrument of praise and so increase its tentative and sideways workings that when you fasten to my door four pairs of compasses whose pencils draw the surface area of time in eight successive circles, like a sketch of fate with one line lengthening to the sun, I know if I keep still, the whole design will grow. The next poem is a gardening poem, um, and it's a poem about packing moss around narcissus bulbs, which is a lovely job to do. I am glad of moss, which lives aloof on a low wall, always to the north of us. Glad of its reticence, glad of its diligence, because after a quarrel, once I turned to moss to let my eyes sink in and stared and stared long enough to see a bird land on a pin, then ferns and a footpath. And after that, I saw the queen of the earth. And therefore, I am twice glad to take a hand fork to the lower wall to lift up moss and let its coldness in through my fingers. Glad to pack it on the bulbs like eerie elf blankets, green and dark and double lined to keep bewitchment in. I am glad of its density, glad of its modesty, and I am twice, no more than twice, glad of Persephone, who loves this hundred-headed flower under my cold hands, waiting to appear. I am glad of moss, which lives aloof on a low wall, always to the north of us. Glad of its reticence, glad of its diligence. Because after a quarrel, once I turned to moss, to let my eyes sink in and stared and stared. <laughs> 
long enough to see a bird land on a pin, then ferns and a footpath. And after that, I saw the queen of the earth. And therefore I am twice glad to take a handful to the low wall, to lift up moss and let its coldness in through my fingers. Glad to pack it on the bulbs like eerie elf blankets, green and dark and double lined to keep bewitchment in. I am glad of its density, glad of its modesty. Yes, I am twice, no more than twice, glad of Persephone, who loves this hundred-headed flower under my cold hands, waiting to appear. The next poem is unoriginally a poem about a nightingale because I discovered a nightingale and sat underneath it for as long as I possibly could, trying to catch its tune in my language. So the main thing this poem is doing is trying to actually uh, render the rhythms that I heard in that nightingale. Um, but it also alludes to the really strange myth that a nightingale is a mother who has murdered her child. When we crossed into night just now, I only half saw something tugging at the tree curtain. And there suddenly was a tiny murderer singing in her dressing room. I can't believe she would wear such dusty clothes, said one angel to another, looking up from his book while her anguish crimsoned his ear. And they told me you have to speak Latin to enter heaven, but she who has been a professional assassin, D minor, D minor, she sings. Oh yes, I can feel her heart racing. Not in great fettle, in fact. It is one of those odd things that the female nightingale is mute. It is only the male who sings. Exit the oak shaking its leafy tambourine, followed by the gate, the field, the path, not even a hat to put money in, simply lie down flat in the dark and forget your family, while the earth with her bird bone needle repairs each myth. When we crossed into night just now, I only half saw something tugging at the tree curtain. And there suddenly was a tiny murderer singing in her dressing room. I can't believe she would wear such dusty clothes, said one angel to another, looking up from his book while her anguish crimsoned his ear. And they told me you have to speak Latin to enter heaven. But she, who has been a professional assassin, D minor, D minor, she sings. Oh yes, I can feel her heart racing. Not in great fettle, in fact. It is one of those odd things 
that the female nightingale is mute. It is only the male who sings. Exit the oak, shaking its leafy tambourine, followed by the gate, the field, the path. Not even a hat to put money in. Simply lie down flat in the dark and forget your family, while the earth, with her bird bone needle, repairs each myth. Just a, a couple more. Uh, the next poem is an older poem called Shadow. And yeah, it, it traces it traces a walk which I used to do every day, watching my shadow following and changing behind me. I'm going to flicker for a moment and tell you the tale of a shadow that falls at dusk out of the blue to the earth and turns left along the path to here. Groggily under its blackout being dragged along crippled over things as if broken wing. Not yet continuous, no more than a shiver of something with the flesh parachute of a human opening above it, but lengthening a little as it descends through the rings of one hour into the next, with the rooks flying upwards, snipping at the clouds, until at last, out of that opening, here it lies, my own impersonal pronoun crumpled under me like a dead body. It is faint. It has been falling for a long time. Look, when I walk, it's like a pair of scissors thrown at me by the sun, so that now, as if my skin were not quite tucked in, I am cold, cold, trying to slide myself out of my own shade. But hour by hour, more shade leaks out. Or if I stand, if I move one hand, I hear the hiss of flowers closing their eyelids and the trees, as if dust was being beaten from a rug, shake out their birds and in again. It's as if I've interrupted something that was falling in a straight line from the eye of God. And if I do nothing, the ground gives up. The almost minty clarity of its grass begins to fade. The white moths under the leaves are amazed. That's a longish poem, so I won't read it twice. And I will end now uh, with a, another sonnet, which I'll only read once. And this is another sonnet about a dream. I, I mostly write sonnets when I dream because there's something about uh, the dream that is already sort of trapped in the head. And so I quite like this trapping form. And this is called Boat Ghost. And it was a poem I wrote after the rowing boat that I really loved, which we used to row across the river in, in Devon 
and we dragged it all the way to Bristol and hid it under a bush and it got stolen. So I had a dream about the ghost of this boat. Dreamt I was up early, a little sly, wanting to steal some time. I had thought I would thrash along through the fields and find our boat and row somewhere. But the river in spate flashed its muchness at me, such a mud-brown mounded exuberance that I lay down wrapped in my coat, knowing it would be hard to row against so much mad self-regard. I had horror of it, fear of its excess, fear of its fear. And as I lay there helpless, weeping about the past, I tell you plainly that an old boat ghost sent a ripple through me. You were there too, and the huge heart shape left by its wake left stirrings in our sleep. Thank you. As if it weren't enough to spend some time in Alice Oswald's dreams. Um, I think we could have listened to just one poem over and over again for the night, but we have more. Uh, Victoria Chang. Victoria Chang's books include The Trees Witness Everything, Dear Memory, Obit, Barbie Chang, The Boss, Salvinia Molesta, Circle and With My Back to the World, um, forthcoming in 2024. She has also written books for children and middle readers and has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Sustainable Arts Foundation Award, the Chowdhury Prize in Literature, a Pushcart Prize, and a McDowell Prize. I nearly lost my place because there were too many. <laughs> Obit, published in 2020 by Copper Canyon, received the LA Times Book Prize, the Ainsfield Wolf Book Award in Poetry, and the Penn Volcker Award. It was long listed for a National Book Award and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Griffin International Poetry Prize. Victor Victoria serves as the Bourne Chair in Poetry at Georgia Tech and as the director of Poetry at Tech. In conversation with Matthew Sapruda for Airlight magazine, Victoria Chang says, I think of myself as an electric wire, a conductor. The poem is electricity or electrons that flow or move through the conductor, me. I'm useful, necessary, but ultimately not the thing itself the thing that is most important, which is the electricity to turn on that light. We are incredibly honored to feature two of Victoria's poems in this issue of Peripheries and to welcome her in person to our community at the Divinity School tonight. Please join me in now in welcoming Victoria Chang. Right. Um, 
given a time. I'm going to read a little bit less than the time that I was given, but uh, make sure I stay within that, within that time, within the other time that I decided for myself. Okay. So, <laughs> hello. How are you? Good. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Periphery's Journal for inviting me. And Jory and Alice, um, such an honor to read with you. Shara, Emma, the multiple Sams um, today, and uh, Professor Charles Stang, and everyone who worked on Peripheries. I, I know how much work goes into such an endeavor. It is a beautiful, gorgeous journal. So congratulations. Um, I brought some slides, but I'm not going to show them just quite yet, and I'm just going to read some poems. This first one is from my book, Obit, and my mother passed away in 2015 of pulmonary fibrosis. That's when your, um, your lungs harden and you gradually suffocate to death. My mother's teeth died twice, once in 1965, all pulled out from gum disease once again on August 3rd, 2015. The fake teeth sit in a box in the garage. When she died, I touched them, smelled them, thought I heard a whimper. I shoved the teeth into my mouth, but having two sets of teeth only made me hungrier. When my mother died, I saw myself in the mirror, her words around my mouth like powder from a donut. Her last words were in English. She asked for a Sprite. I wonder whether her last thought was in Chinese. I wonder what her last thought was. I used to think that a dead person's words die with them. Now I know that they scatter, looking for meaning to attach to, like a scent. My mother used to collect orange blossoms in a small, shallow bowl. I passed the tree each spring. I always knew that grief was something I could smell, but I didn't know that it's not actually a noun, but a verb, that it moves. I'm going to skip that one. I'm going to do a lot of skipping. This one is called The Bees. I don't know why I'm resisting wearing my glasses. I can't see anything. Okay. The Bees. 268 million years ago from the Philippines passed away on April 26, 2217 in Nome, Alaska. The detaching icebergs crushed the bees who used to fly over conference rooms. Once I nearly died in a small plane with a CEO, CFO, and COO during their IPO. On the ground, the CEO glared at me as if I had caused the storm, as if the yellow lights had come from my mind, as if the buzzing had come from my shaking, as if the lightning were a box I had tripped over. Maybe he was right. Maybe I had become estranged from a part of myself that wanted to stay alive, that wanted them to remain alive. In the same way, I had become estranged from my mother forever, but not from her death. Um, slide. Okay, not yet, actually, but that you can look at that while I read so you don't look at me. But um, my uh, mother 
you know, passed in 2015, and then I eventually found a box or box, or actually storage facility with lots of boxes. And um, I was initially very excited. I found all the things that one might find, lots of papers, documents. I suddenly knew names of people I didn't know. I knew birth dates and things like that. Um, but the more things I found, oddly, the more sort of grief I felt because I had no one to ask all these questions to. So I started writing a little bit of prose and I wrote my mother a letter. And this is the first letter I wrote and it eventually became um, lots of letters to lots of people and it became my book, um, Dear Memory, which I'll show you some stuff from there later. Like that's uh, the next thing I'll be reading. Dear Mother, I have so many questions. What city were you born in? What was your American birthday, your Chinese birthday? What did your mother do? What did your grandmother do? Who was your father, grandfather? It's too late now, but I would like to know. I would like to know why your mother followed Chiang Kai-shek, taking you and your six or seven siblings across China to Taiwan. I would like to know what was said in that meeting. I would like to know who was in that meeting, where that meeting took place. I would like to know the people that were left behind. I would like to know if there are other people who look like me. I would like to know if you took a train, if you walked, if you had pockets in your dress, if you wore pants, if your hand was in a fist, or if it held a small stone. I would like to know if you thought the trees were black or green at night, if it was cold enough to see your breath, to sting your fingers. I would like to know who you spoke to along the way, if you had some preserved salty plums that we both love in your pocket. I would like to know if you carried a bag, if you had a book in your bag. I would like to know where you got your food for the trip, why I never knew your mother, father, or your siblings. I would like to have known your father. I would like to know what his voice sounded like, if it was brittle or pale, if it was blue or red. I would have liked to know the sound he made when he swallowed food. I would like to know if your mother was afraid. During college, I spent several weeks with her in Taiwan. She bought me baozi or buns every morning, the bao that steamed in small plastic bags with no ties, and sweet doujang tofu milk. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. <coughs> Always too hot for me to drink. How she sat there and watched me eat, complained to me about your brother's wife. She complained of being sick and how no one would help her. Do you know how long it took me to figure out how to call an ambulance? And then when they came, she refused to go. I still remember how the two men stared at me as if I could move a country. Listen, it's the wind. That's the same wind from your countries. Sometimes, if I listen closely at night, I can hear you drop a small bag at the door. I hear the sound of the bow touching the ground and the wind trying to open the bag. But when I open the door, there's nothing there, just the same wind, thousands of years old. Happy birthday, wind. Happy birthday, mother. April 6, 1940. I know this now. All the nurses, doctors, and morticians asked me, so I memorized it. Your American birthday, April 6, 1940. I said again and again, as if I had known this my whole life. I'm wondering why I'm losing. Oh, thank you. You know, I did such a good job today. I walked 16,000 steps. Thank you. 
I went to the Museum of Fine Arts and decided I saw so many amazing things, including the, the artist, uh, Matthew Wong, if you don't know that artist. Um, I was so moved that I walked my way back here, but now I lost my voice, so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Um, so now I'm gonna read some of these. I made also started working with my hands a lot. So I did some collaging, and I'm not a you know visual artist, but I do like playing around with my hands. Um, let's see. Okay, that one. It's so hard to see from here. Okay, um, that one is my mother is in there somewhere, and and uh, I ended up cutting little pieces of paper and writing poems on them, and then I glued them on, and then I unglued them, and I ended up just letting them kind of stay a little bit alight, unattached. So I'll read the little poem on there. I wonder what the hat was trying to cover. The others have flowers on their dresses. All of your flowers were on the underside. Even then, your stare was slightly lower, looking right beneath where happiness begins. The next slide, please. Um, that one, I think, is the one where my, I think it's my great-grandmother, um, and then my mother's at the top, and there are multiple of her siblings, and I believe there are maybe one or two that are missing, maybe unborn. Once you had to stand behind your grandmother, who left a country, each of your feet lifted off the land onto the boat like nightingales. I imagine the night sky, you below deck, light coming from two moons, but only half of your face lit up. You stood still as the moons rearranged themselves. During the switch, language was lost at sea. When language belongs to no one, a door opens. Um, I'm gonna switch and read some miniature poems. So I, my brain moves a lot. So you maybe you have to just adjust to my my jumping. Um, I'm going to read a few of these tiny poems that are from the Trees Witness Everything, and they're tiny, tiny, like three lines, four lines, that kind of thing. They're all in syllabics, so like maybe a la Marion Moore, a la haikus and um, tankas. And they to to make my heart my life even harder, I used the titles of W. S. Merwin as my titles, and um, you'll see why. They're just really these really gorgeous, capacious, open titles. They're kind of like little glittering fields that call you to, to, to use them as their titles, or maybe that's just me. I'll read a few. To age. When the stars hit the windows now, they turn into flies. Who knew they would come down? The river of bees. There are no more bees. Remember how they glided? Don't worry, they are not dead. They have flown past death. There, they walk on two legs, build their hives out of concrete. Calling late. The men used to call at all hours, but what I missed most are the late night talks, ones where I held the phone so close it pressed like a gun. Little soul. I rode on your back until your knees broke, and now one mile left, I must toss you. Turning. My mother is dead. The lemons still turn yellow. 
The trout still stare emptily. Desire is still free. We still love many people, eat peaches as if kissing. The lovers. There is a wildfire starving on top of a lake. See how the water holds fire but cannot end it? We insist on love when all we want is mercy. The gods. The fact that leaves can't be put back on trees makes me think that you do not exist. So I'm gonna switch again to these um, new poems, and they are ekphrastic poems based on the artwork of the artist Agnes Martin. Does anyone know her work? Yeah, I love her so much. Um, and I'll read, so the MoMA had actually commissioned a poem, and so I wrote a poem on a, um, Agnes Martin's piece on a clear day, 1973, which I think I brought a slide in for. Maybe you could move. Yeah, there, there it is. And there's a whole series of these, actually. Um, and when they're put on a wall together, they're so beautiful. And also, uh, during that time, the Atlanta spa shootings had happened. Um, and so that appears in here as well. On a clear day, 1973. On a clear day, the horses disappeared. Just the apples they had been fed were left. The apples were strewn across the field and had become rectangles. When people found them, they still gathered and ate them. The people who hunched over their apples were far away, but the sounds of their chewing were over here. On a clear day, all the sounds fit into the boxes. On any clear day, all my thinking fits into boxes that can't be opened. What if our thinking was never meant to come out? If it only remains thinking within boxes, when out it becomes weapons, takes on different shapes with sharp points, Today, there is no shortage of thinking, but all the thinking is divided into portions. Today, I'm hungry, but all the portions are gone. There are only 48. On clear days, there are only 48 birds, 48 people, and 48 houses, and 48 wars, and 48 apples. I keep counting grids, but no matter how I try, I still get six dead Asian women who don't fit into 48 boxes. All night, my thoughts are shaped like birds. In the morning, I lean in closer to the mirror and someone has drawn lines across my face. I realize that failure consists of both the outline and the outlined, that lines are not meant to hold in our emptiness. Okay, how are we doing? I'm gonna read just a few more. Maybe, let's see, maybe I'll read the one that is in peripheries. So we'll have to skip ahead a little bit. Skip, oh, that's the poem. And the skip, skip, skip. <laughs> so much Agnes Martin for you to just enjoy. Keep going, please. Yes, keep going, thank you. There, okay, thank you. I always bring too much and then I start shaving and cutting when I'm up here. Not the smartest thing to do. Um, so I'll read, just so you know, I will read two more poems, this one and one more. This is called Reclining Woman, and it's um, based on a Picasso. That's up there. The woman's head, the size of a small peach, three more small peaches between her legs. 
I wouldn't have put three between her legs, separating desire into thirds or making it round. I wouldn't have painted desire on its side. The women are always reclining on couches. Lately, a rope pokes out of my skin. The only way I've ever known how to use a rope is for hanging. Lately, I've been feeling that there could be another use for the rope. Others might name that hope, but I think of it as efficiency. Once I used the rope to hold back my hand's desire to touch someone so many times that my biceps doubled in size. Sensitive people's fingers are always pointing at the lilies outside of the frame. What if the tingling was never an inner life but the trees using our veins to send Earth's classified information? Maybe the hands were spies all along, wrapped in a borrowed coat. Maybe desire is really vertical. It is a tree rushing messages to another tree. Sometimes there are so many messages because of our killing that our hands swell. And I'll read one more. And it's, I think it's the gold one that's... Keep going, please. That one, thank you. Has anyone seen this one? Yay, one person. It's in the MoMA in New York right now. If you happen to be there over the holidays or anytime soon, you should go check it out. It's my favorite. It's one of three pieces that she used gold leaf with uh, to make out of. And um, gold leaf is very difficult to work with. And this is um, a beautiful piece. Actually, if you go to the next slide, I think. Yeah, that's how it looks in the room. And one more, I think I got one more. Yeah, that just shows you how big is it. It's 10 by 10. So I'll read the poem. It's called Friendship, 1963. Thank you for listening. I came to the city so I could see gold. When I arrived, though, the leaves were gold, too, and I became confused. I called the front desk four times, and Angel answered each time. By the third call, he ended with, talk soon. In the morning, a different man answered, and I burst into tears. On 53rd Street, small children kept on running into me. A father yelled so loudly at the boy on the scooter that I thought he knew I was carrying death on my back. By the time I arrived at the museum, there was a long line. The bald man in front of me kept turning around to look at me. I could tell by his forehead that he could hurt me. When I finally found the room, I was the only one in there. Everyone else was below me in the Picasso room. While I stared at the gold rectangles, two attendants talked about whether to work overtime and get paid time and a half. I wanted to tell them that there's no such thing as time, just time and a half. Sometime in the night, Etel Adnan had died. I had just seen her paintings the day before. The crowds were large, and I wondered whether our looking had accelerated her death. When I took a photo of Agnes's piece, I saw my dark reflection on the gold. I started counting the grids, but the bald man came up next to me. Suddenly, there were two dark shadows on the gold. I asked him to step away, but when he said no, it was Agnes's voice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Victoria. We didn't actually plan that um, you'd be presenting um, visual art, but we're so grateful for that because 
that's one of the things Peripheries tries to do, um, is to um, have visual art and poetry talking to one another. So that was absolutely perfect and electrifying. Jory Graham. Jory Graham is the author of numerous collections of poetry, most recently to 2040 and to the last Be Human, which collects her four prior books, Runaway, Fast, Place, and Sea Change. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 1996 for The Dream of the Unified Field, selected poems from 1974 to 1994, and her many other awards and honors include a MacArthur Fellowship, an Ingram Merrill Fellowship, the Morton Dowen Zabel Award, the Whiting Award, the Forward Prize for Poetry, and the Wallace Stevens Award. She has taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop and is currently the Boylston Professor of Rhetoric and Oratory at Harvard. Asked in a New Yorker interview with Katie Waldman, to identify the overwhelming question that shapes her work. Jory responds, what is creation? By which I mean the world around us. And what would be a right relationship to it? How do we, in the midst of such gifts from what we once regarded, sorry, let me start again. <laughs> what would be a right relationship to, we, to it? How do we, in the midst of such gifts from what we once regarded as an actual creation, do so much harm? How do we, nonetheless, in the face of this, live our, own, our one life fully, making sure not to override wonder, astonishment, pleasure, joy? Jory, I'm addressing her, she's everywhere. <laughs> As our teacher, mentor, and dear friend, we want to thank you for all that you have given us and continue to give us. Much of our community here would not exist if it weren't for you. Peripheries certainly would not exist. We have been waiting for a long time for peripheries to be worthy enough to invite you to read. We still don't think we've quite gotten there, but luckily you have agreed to grace us with your Presence nonetheless. Everyone, please join me in welcoming our own Jory Graham. Thank you, Shira. Uh, thank you to everyone who's made, thank you. First of all, I would like to say that uh, the two readings that I've just sat through are astonishing. Um, uh, really worth worth the uh, worth time that is as Alice pointed out um, time spent and not recoverable. I would like to say that Shiraz poems, Emma's poems, Sam's poems, and um, many of the other people who participate in uh, the making of peripheries are themselves astonishing works and. I can't wait till those books are in the world and that you get to hear from them, although they are widely published. They're remarkable. The magazine is remarkable. And thank you to the Divinity School for having had the, I actually don't know how the Divinity School works because so many poets in, that are coming out of Harvard um, 
are all the divinity school and I don't know what you're doing. Maybe it's because you, I, I tell myself that it's because it's the one part of the university that is asking um, questions that are actually unanswerable. And as a result, well, that keeps you on edge. Um, I'm going to read three poems to close out this incredible evening. Um, they, all of the poems tonight have worked with time and the, the feeling of real time and of the kind of time, which is lyric time, which is interesting what Alice was doing about reading the poem twice. Um, you, you do feel that something happens on the page and that you have a strange way of being able to go back upstream in a poem and read it again. And it's not the same time you were in when you read it the first time. Um, I think that's what you know, Shakespeare is always telling us in his sonnets when he's talking about uh, making you aware of the fact that um, the poem you've just read, he's just written, he's just undergone it. My, one of my favorite lines, as my students all know, is uh, the ending line that in black ink, my love may still shine bright, um, reminding us that the ink hasn't been blotted yet, that it is still wet on the page. Um, in the sonnet that Shakespeare has just written and that um, it's still wet for me and just as fresh in the emotion that I receive reading the poem this many hundreds of years later. Um, top 28 started today. It's a, I know there is much, much else very grave and I was going to do a reading that was all involved with the other nightmares that are going on on the planet right now, but I really feel like COP28 is one of the last chances we have to make some sense of it. And there was actually some good news. I don't even know that I've seen any good news recently, but there was good news today in the first day of COP. So I'm going to read some poems that involve um, our relationship to Shiraz quote, our relationship to creation. Uh, the, the, of the first of the three poems I'll read is in short quatrains and uh, the title runs into the first line. So I'll, I'll read it continuously. Extinct yet, who owns the map? May I look, where is my claim? Is my history verifiable? Have I included the memory of the animals? The animals' memories, are they still here? Are we alone? Look, the filaments appear of memories. Whose? What was land like? Did it move through us? Something says nonstop, are you here? Are your ancestors real? Do you have a body? Do you have yourself in mind? Can you see your hands? Have you broken it, the thread? Try to feel the pull of the other end, says, Make sure both ends are alive when you pull to try to re-enter here. A raven 
has arrived while I am taking all this down. Incorporate me, it squawks. It hops closer along the stone wall. Do you remember despair is coming closer, says? I look at him. Do not hurry, I say, but he is tapping the stone all over with his beak. His coat is sun. He looks carefully at me because I am so still and eager. He sees my loneliness. He sees my loneliness. Cicadas begin. Is this a real encounter, I ask, of the old kind when there were ravens? No, says the light. You are barely here. The raven left a long time ago. It is traveling its thread, its sky road forever now. It knows the current through the cicadas, which you cannot hear, but which flows over you now. But is it not here, I ask, looking up through my stanzas? Did it not reach me as it came in? Did it not enter here at stanza eight? And where does it go now when it goes away again? When I tell you the raven is golden, when I tell you it lifted and it went, and it went. I'm gonna read a poem from Runaway. Um, thinking of Alice's garden and creation, the poem titled Tree. It's in quatrains, but in longer line quatrains. Again, it deals with different um, relationships to the time we are in. And a lot of these poems imagine a future time and then look back at the time we are in and make us feel the tension between um, well, what it looks like to be alive now, if you imagine no longer being alive now and maybe seeing what you already have. In this poem, history enters into the picture of it. Tree. There's a fig tree and uh, Today on two legs stood and reached to the right spot as I saw it, choosing among the twisting branches and multifaceted changing shades and greens and shades of greens, lobbed and lashing sun, the fig that seemed to me the perfect one, the ready one, it is permitted, it is possible, it is actual, 
the VR glasses are not needed yet. Not for now. No, not for this while longer. And it is warm in my cupped palm. And my fingers close round, but not too fast. Somewhere, wind like a hammer stroke slows down and lengthens endlessly. Closer in, the bird whose coin toss on a metal tray never stills to one face. Something is preparing to begin again. It is not us. Shh, say the spreading sails of cicadas as the winch of noon takes hold and we are wrapped in day and hoisted up all the ribs of time showing through in the growing, in the lengthening harness of sound, some gnats nearby, a fly where the white milk drop of the torn stem starts, dust on the eglantine skin, white powder in the confetti of light all up the branches, truth, Sweetness of blood scent and hauled in light. Withers of the wild carnival of tree shaking once as the fruit is removed from its dream. Remain, I think, backing away from the trembling into full corrosive sun. Momentary blindness follows. Correction. There are only moments, they hurt. Correction, must I put down here that this is long ago, that the sky has been invisible for years now, that the ash of our fires has covered the sun, that the fruit is stunted yellow mold when it appears at all, and we have no produce to speak of, no longer exists. All my attention is free for you to use. I can cast farther and farther out now before the change, a page turned. We have gone into another story. History floundered or one day the birds disappeared. The imagination tried to go here when we asked it to. From where I hold the fruit in my right hand, but it would not go. Where is it now? Where is this here where you and I look up trying to make sense of the normal, turn it to life, more life, disinterred from desire, heaved up onto the dry shore awaiting the others who could not join us in the end for good. I want to walk to the left around this tree I have made again. I want to sit under it full of secrecy, insight, immensity, vigor, bursting complexity, 
swarm. Oh, great forwards and backwards. I never felt my face change into my new face. Where am I facing now? Is the question of good still stinging the open before us with its muggy destination pitched into nothingness? Something expands in you where it wrenches up its bright policing into view. Is this good? Is this the good? Under the celebrating crowd, inside the silences, it forces hard away all around itself. Where chanting thins, where we win the war again, made thin by bravery and belief. Here's a Polaroid, if you want. Here's a souvenir. Here now for you to watch unfold up close. The fruit is opening. The ribs will widen now. It is all seed, reddish foam, history. And I'm going to end on a short poem from my most recent book. And it's um, just, it is a reminder. That, um, we have it in us to know ourselves and not know ourselves. And we are in the process of watching that happen. I've been writing a lot of, uh, thinking a lot about you know, the differences between crowd emotion and individual or what I call lyric emotion, the ways in which uh, we are watching ourselves be pulled up into emotions which are crowd emotions, not just in literal crowds, but in the crowd, which is the online world or in other kinds of sources of communal emotion, which give rise to emotions that we're not sure we actually feel or can control. And then what it means to recover individual emotion with accountability, which is of a different order. And uh, whether we are being perhaps uh, treacherously guided away from the ability to recover individual emotion. This person is titled, this poem is titled, The First Person, I, and the title runs into the first line. It seems it's a kind of confession also, or, uh, but it's the right poem for um, what the way I imagine the divinity school. I know myself, I say to myself, so I cannot be led astray. Led astray, I say, I know myself more fully now. So I cannot be made to do something 
I, as an other, would never do. But I did it. Didn't I do it? It wasn't me to do such a thing or believe such a thing. I tell myself as I look carefully into the only mirror I am given, my self in there, me looking carefully and hard. I am honest in my looking, I think, as I see someone else in their opening, will in their eyes wild like a sail in the wind, wind arising now as I look in, bewildered, the old gentleness, where is it? I put my hand to my face, but it touches glass. Where is my body to guide me, I think? I tap at the prisoner in there. Is that the schoolroom? The blank in the lesson? Is that my soul gradually by its 10,000 adjustments to its own increasing absence opening too far? Is it blind? I tap face, which is gone on the glass, which is not gone. Don't stop, I hear my mind hiss. Don't stop for anything. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jory. Again, she's everywhere now. <laughs> um, thank you for, in your poems and in your person, helping us to live our one lives fully. And please join me in thanking again our three poets tonight. And if you continue to feel inspired, Submissions for Peripheries, Edition 7, open tomorrow, December 1st. <laughs> Thank you. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.